Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. Join us at Patreon.com forward slash Jumpers Podcast. Today, we are reminiscing about April 1996, a month that saw the release of the classic No Doubt song, don't speak. Something I'm sure Kevin Keegan wished he had done, looking back at his infamous I would love it rant. 1996 also saw the start of Moonman Stefan Schwartz's favourite comedy, Third Rock from the Sun. A show about a bunch of aliens in human disguises trying to fit in on Earth. Something that Stefan Schwartz can definitely relate to. Mush the Matchman is live from Anfield to see how Liverpool get on against an exciting Newcastle side. And Brucey's Bath features a Geordie legend. So, what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Toffees just need to see this game out. A few minutes to play. Tuning up thanks to goals by Swiss Army Knife Hottinger and Russian gangster Kanchelskis. Big Neville Southall has had a fairly comfortable afternoon. Well, I can still see sweat on his forehead. Big sweaty nerve in his 1970s Tash hurls the ball out to Swiss blade Hottinger. Toblerone feet squares it to Daniel the Bull Amakachi. He drives at Simon Coleman, not Chris, the Nigerian still going. He cruises past Coleman into the box. Scott Sellers sticks a leg out, but no! He's laid it off for the 25-year-old Nigerian! I'd like to see his password. He smashes it past Ward! Daniel Amakachi makes it 3 0! These next two men love a good football book. Top of Dan's reading list is Dennis Bergkamp's autobiography, Stillness and Speed, and also Inverting the Pyramid, the history of football tactics. Mush the Matchman has a different taste when it comes to books. He is halfway through Steve Bruce's novel, Striker. It's a footballing whodunit. Irish striker Pat Duffy is stabbed to death in the changing room. Honestly, listener, Brucey is a fiction writer. Look it up. When Mush is finished with Brucey, he can't wait to get stuck into one of Frank Lampard's young readers' books, Frankie's Magic Football. It's Daniel McIntyre and Connor Elliott, also known as Dan and Mush the Matchman. Dan, how are we doing today? Very good, Stephen. Dan, what is your favourite part of 1996 growing up? Oh, I was starting to uh, truly fall in love with football. Eric Cantona was my first hero. I was buzzing anytime the Nike football ad, Good versus Evil, came on the TV when Cantona, Maldini, Ian Wright, and many other legends went to hell to play against a devil select. What a TV ad that was, and uh, a great time to be a footballer. Oh, what an ad. That and the, the Nike Airport ad have to be up there in oh, the top yes. two of all time. Matchman, you've got a lovely, colourful jersey on there today. What are you wearing for us? The kit I'm wearing is the Chelsea home kit from the 95-96 season. A blue collar with a yellow trim. A white v-neck for those men who wanted to button up. The club crest had a yellow trim around it. And the big seal would also be enlarged to fade in on the front of the overall kit. 
Was it to strike fear into the opposition as a seal as a dangerous creature? I don't think it did as Chelsea finished 11th this season. Shirt designers were the reliable Umbro. Never doubt them, despite Michael Owen being their poster boy for a stint. The kit was sponsored by Coors. Yes, the beer brewery from Golden, Colorado, who gave us Coors Light and then Jean-Claude Van Damme commercials. I'm sure of these few Chelsea players enjoyed a tin of Coors on the bus home after visiting grounds such as the Riverside, Highfield Road and the Dell. Men who wore this shirt were Scottish trio John Spencer, Craig, Dry Pundit Burley and current Scotland manager Steve Clark. Defenders who were snug in this kit. Scott, I presented La Liga from my kitchen with Jerry Armstrong Minto. Norwegian Aaron Johnson, who has scored at Windsor and a Hamden Park. Frank, OG King Sinclair. Dan, I dyed my hair bleach blonde Petrescu. And Leeds legend, Dubray. Men who like to kick in this sh- shirt. Little Dennis Niggly Wise. Eddie Newton. Gavin Ponytail Peacock. Paul Final Furlong. Sexy football himself, Rude Gullet and Mark Sparky Hughes. And selecting the 10 men to wear this kit in front of keeper Dimitri Baggy Trousers Corrine was Glenn Previous Life Huddle. The kit day morning is the Chelsea home kit from 95-96. How the hell did that team finish 11th? I think Frank Sinclair scored 30 on goals that season. Did probably didn't help. I think Michael Dubry might have popped up with a couple as well. <laughs> oh yes, definitely, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, you look like you've got a fine shirt on as well. Has somebody scribbled on that, Dan? Oh, don't talk to me, Stephen. This week I am wearing the Nottingham Forest away shirt from the 1995-1996 season, and it is crazy. The kit design is yellow in colour with red navy around a V-shaped collar, which is also striped with Forest and Nottingham design across the top half of the shirt. In navy, I think it's designed by a possibly a child that made it with a Crayola cranes, but it looks wonderful. And then it has a magnificent red crest in classic Nottingham Forest fashion. It is sponsored by Labbots Lager. I had to do a bit of homework on this, and I'm hoping I can get myself a six-pack of this from somewhere. It may cost a fortune, but it will be worth it. It's designed by 90s Mushroom Eaters Umbro, who made many a mild kit during the decade of the 90s. Managed by Frank Clark, Forrest finished a respectful ninth in the Premier League this season and were quarter-finalists in the UEFA Cup before being knocked out by Bayern Munich. This kit was worn by legends Stuart Psycho Pierce, Steve Cattle Chattel, Colin Hanging with Mr Cooper, Scott Ginger Gamel, Steve Slaphead Stone, Ian Doesn't Wown, Alfinger Haaland, Chris Bart Simpson Williams, Brian of the Rovers Roy, Kevin Campbell Soup, and Pineapple Head Jason Lee. What an absolutely magnificent kit. You could wear this playing football, you could wear it to Ibiza, you could wear it to a festival, and you could wear it to bed. It's unbelievable. It's my favourite kit of the series, and I'm buzzing. If you're not familiar with this kit, look it up. Honestly, it is so bad. It's brilliant. What was the pineapple head one there you said? Jason Lee. You know the boy, the striker? Yes. Like Maud Simpson? Yes. And he was cat. (laughs) Okay, it's time to look back at the best and worst bits of business of 95-96. This is Transfer Business. Stephen and here are my best bits of transfer business from the 1995-1996 season. In at number five it's Savo Milosevic 
who moved from Partizan to Aston Villa for the bargain price of £3.5 million. Big Savo proved a huge hit for Villa, forming a great partnership with the White York and leading them to League Cup glory this season, where Savo was well into the double figures in his goal tally and would soon move on to greater things in Serie A. But before that, Villa fans loved the big man. In at number four, and it's my lover, little Juninho, who moved from Sao Paulo to Middlesbrough for £4.75 million. Juninho was loved at the Riverside. Brian Robson loved the little man. His teammates loved him. The fans loved him. The Premier League loved him. He was a brilliant player and helped keep Middlesbrough in the Premier League this season. Was this the first time or the seventh time that he signed for a borough? <laughs> this is the first time, Stephen. Good question. I should have said that in my notes, okay. sir. Is the first time that Middlesbrough brought him to the Premier League. Great stuff. In at number three, and it's Sir Les Ferdinand, who moved from QPR, Queensport Rangers, to Newcastle United for £6 million in the summer of 1995. Les thumped in the goals, forming a great partnership with Peter Beardsley, David Junela, and Keith Gillespie, and proved to be the ultimate replacement for Andy Cole, who had moved to Manchester United the previous January. Matchman, a fan of Les Ferdinand? I look back at his goals for QPR. He was the one-man powerhouse up top for them. That QPR team, they were very poor. He had a good partnership with your mate Alan Shearer as well, Matchman? Yes, me and Shearer are very, very good uh, friends. Despite his dry personality, we do get on. And in at number two, it's sexy football, Rude Hullet, who moved from Sampdoria to Chelsea on a free transfer. What a masterstroke this was from previous life, Glenn Hoddle, bringing the former World Player of the Year to the Premier League. It was a shock to me at the time and still is looking back, but this was really the start of Chelsea bringing those top players to the club and trying to bring that continental flavour. He would, of course, go on and manage Chelsea. Uh, Rude Hullet was loved and adored by Chelsea fans and his teammates, and he brought a touch of class to the London club. What Matchman, what do you think... Glenn Hoddle said to Rude Hullett to tempt him to Stamford Bridge. He would have said, I know in your previous life you spat on Rudy Voller, but I, I can forgive you and I need you to come here and work alongside Dubre and Sinclair. They need you. And at number one, it was the standout choice. I couldn't avoid it. And it's Dennis the Iceman Burkamp who moved from Inter Milan in Syria to Arsenal for £7.5 million. A surprise at the time, Arsenal did not have a very good 94-95 season. They didn't have a big-name manager at the time. How they were able to get Burkamp to Highbury is beyond me, looking back. But they got him, and he was worth every penny they paid for him. He changed the club completely. He changed his teammates' mentality. A legend of a footballer and a world-class player. Hey, right in saying, Dan, that the Inter Milan chairman didn't fancy Bergkamp. They were making some some tactical changes basically that were going against Bergkamp's qualities and uh, Bergkamp went along with it the first season and he did well in Europe because they won the UEFA Cup and that's where he really shone but he struggled in Serie A like a lot of strikers back then it was a, the toughest toughest league defensively yeah the second season it all just came to a head and fair play to Arsenal I have to say I wouldn't have thought he would have went to Arsenal at that time they went for him, they got him, and it was a match made in heaven. Okay, match man, who makes your top five worst bits of business? 
In at number five is Richard Jobson for £1 million to Leeds United from Oldham Athletic. Jobson was 32 at the time of the transfer, so that's a lot of coin back then for a defender. And considering Leeds had Radibi, Weatherall, Tony Drago, not the mad snooker player, Nigel Worthington, Gary Kelly and Pemberton are ready to protect Lukic and Beanie. He never established himself at Ellen Road along with injuries and he only managed 22 appearances in three seasons. He joined Southend on loan before joining City in 1998. Number four, Eli Dimitrescu. £1.75 million from Tottenham Hotspur to West Ham. Yes, it's Harry with another transfer. He was a part of the Romanian team along with Hadji that was the 1994 World Cup fairy tale. First signed him on the back of that and he was shipped down along to Seville before Harry thought he could rekindle the magic. Well, Harry, you didn't. He played 10 games and didn't spot any fires at West Ham apart from his work permit which he couldn't get an extension on, so he was released. He retired at the age of 29, and he went on to manage no fewer than 13 clubs in 10 years, and then he retired from coaching at the age of 42. Number three, it's Chris Coleman for £4.4 million from Crystal Palace to Blackburn Rovers. Rovers were champions and will be competing in the Champions League. So Jack Walker's checkbook was whopped out to purchase Coleman. No, not Tiny Gary, but Welsh Gary. He played 28 times across a season and a half at Eward Park, where he never really established himself. He then took a drop down to the old Division 2, where he captained Fulham to promotion. I think Blackburn bought the wrong Palace defender here, you know. They were looking for a centre-back for Colin Hendry, and they should have, it should have been Gar Southgate that they bought as the champions of England. Southgate went to, went to Aston Villa and done brilliant for them and sometimes when you look at a centre-back partnership or, or or any back four partnership you think they're all top players and then when you take them out individually they're, they're just not quite at it so I think Blackburn slipped up there no disrespect to Coleman at all because uh, he's not good Number two Dario Kovac £4.5 million from Red Star Belgrade to Sheffield Wednesday David Pleat, a man who had been caretaker manager of Spurs, not once, not twice, but thrice, had noticed his form the previous year where he notched up 37 goals and he lured him to Hillsborough. He scored a brace against Bolton early on, but sure, Bolton were the whipping boys that season. He only notched two more in 15 appearances and his skills were questioned as he didn't really do much else than stand up top trying to flick on Kevin Pressman's kickouts. He was shipped out to Real Sociedad where he would bang goals in across two spells and he is now sporting director of the Serbian Football Association. And number one is William Prunier. Free agent given a trial, so no transfer fee involved here. Thank God. Prunier looked a bit like Yapstam. Well, he played a lot like Yapstam. United were badly stuck at the back as our bath time mucker, Brucey, Gary Pallister and David Photobomb May, all on the shelf injured. Word has it Fergie was in search of a continental centre-back who could play out from the back. And he got speaking to another good friend of ours, Eric, who knew Prunier. So he bought himself out of his contract at Bordeaux so he could go have a trial at United. Fergie was left with no option to throw him straight in at the deep end. Prunier had a solid debut against QPR as he set up a goal for the artist formerly known as Andy Cole and he smashed the woodwork in a game United 1-2-1. One, 
but it was the next game would be his last for United. A 4-1 drubbing at the White Hart Lane. Prunier had a stinker. Mind you, Prunier was offered to extend the trial, but he said no as he wanted to look elsewhere. I think he knew he was out of his depth and was scared of Fergie. You know, when you're asking a madman and obviously a top player, Cantona, but he wouldn't be someone you'd be looking for transfer advice from. No. You know, <laughs> if you're signing Cantona's mate, you're taking a gamble. <laughs> Big style. Right, lads, I've got a bizarre bit of business for you. When I read this, I couldn't help but laugh and thought I had to get this in somewhere. So it's a transfer out and it's Dean Saunders who left Aston Villa to join up with Graham Souness at Galatasaray for £2.41 million at 31 years of age, right? Which is a hell of a lot of money for a 31-year-old. Now, that's where the story starts, but this part of the story is actually the best part of it. According to Dean Saunders' first wife, Helen, they went for a weekend break to Turkey, only for him to then turn around on the Monday and say, I've signed for Galatasaray, and now we live here. <laughs> what do we make of this signing? Dean Saunders to Galatasaray. It's a mad signing when you think of it. You know, Galatasaray were just full of Turkish international saying the old South American man. So to sign, sign a Welsh striker, absolutely nuts. And obviously it wouldn't have happened without Tunis, but Tunis had managed a few European clubs and he always looked at the Premier League and he made a few mad signings for Galatasaray and later for Benfica. So, and in case in the case of Saunders, he's a man who clearly put his career first, you know. The, his, Mrs. Saunders had to live where she, she was cold and that's that. I just have this image of her like packing a bag for the weekend and then on the Monday about to get in the flight and be like, no, 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 we're not getting on that flight. We live here now. <laughs> And Dan, you're absolutely right about Graham Souness signing a few going back to the Premiership because not only did he sign Dean Saunders, he also signed Barry the Mullet Venison oh. for three quarters of a million the same season. You're joking. Oh, I, did know that. I did not know that either. <laughs> Barry Venison was at Galatasaray. He played four games for them. Four too many. Four too many indeed. <laughs> On the ball, Venison. Dean Saunders' record at Galatasaray wasn't too bad. He scored 15 and 27. All good striker. No doubt about that. Very good striker. Well, there you go, lads. There's a bizarre transfer of the weekend. Just goes to show British managers abroad. Let's get the lads over for an outpiss up in Turkey. Okay, we will be back with our first game, which is Nottingham Forest against Tottenham Hotspur. But first, here is a lovely goal from the Premier League. 95-96. Into injury time here at Highbury. Still 1-1. Is there to be one more chance for either side? Leeds legend Thomas Brolin. He looks out a puff. Maverick Merson to clip a ball to the blonde curtain's head of Hartson. But no, ah, says the chief Radibi. He nods it out for a throw. Dixon with the throw. He's struggling to grip the ball. Merson dinks it up. He's being pressured by Carlton Palmer, not the kangaroo. Merce, he's juggling the ball with his boot. Merson hooks the ball over his shoulder. Bit of hit and hope, similar to his bets. Platt with the flick onto the box to Ian Wright. Back to goal. Holds off Weatherall. Turns him on toes. Shoots. Goal! Ian Wright, right, right. May have won it. Nothing wrong with that as he leaves John Lukic in the Leeds goal fuming. It's Arsenal 2, Leeds 1. OK, we are back with our first match. Nottingham Forest against Spurs. Dan took a look at this one from the city ground. Dan, what happened between these two wonderful 
English sides. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, uh, very good game at the city ground here between two evenly matched sides on the day and that season. And Nottingham Forest lined up with a 4-3-3 on the day with goalkeeper Mark Crossley, a back four of Des Little, Stuart Pearce, Steve Chettle and Colin Cooper, a midfield three of Chris Bart-Williams, Steve Stone and Ian Wong, and a front three of Brian Roy, Paul McGregor and Jason Lee. Tottenham arrived with a fine 4-4-2 and they went with Ian Walker in goals, Dean Stone Cold, Steve Austin right back, Sol Campbell and Stuart Nethercutt centre-half with Clive Wilson left back. A midfield four of Jason Dazelle, Rule Fox, David Howells and Andy Sinton. And a lovely front two of Teddy Shrinham and summer signing Chris Armstrong. The game started in even fashion with both teams creating and making opportunities for each other in a tough opening period overall with Rude Fox and Chris Armstrong going close for Tottenham Hotspurs and Ian Wong and Jason Lee going close for Iron Forest. Jason Lee, who surely should have had more goals than he did for Forest. And Ian Wong, a lovely left foot and, in my opinion, certainly should have had a few England caps. In the 35th minute, Captain Stuart Pearce took the ball by the horns and went on a driving run from left back, skinning Stone Cold Dean Austin and drilling a shot which was blocked by Ian Walker, but tapped in by tiny ball man. You know it. It's Steve Stone who had another idea for Tottenham on that day. And he put Spurs 1-0 down at the city ground. Forrest in front. The remaining 10 minutes of the first half saw Spurs digging deep and Teddy Sheringham going close twice. I do feel, looking at this Tottenham Hotspur lineup, that Teddy just needed a little bit more help. He was in desperate need for Darren Anderton to somehow get fit again. 1-0 to Nottingham Forest at the break. Second half started and again a lively start, but Forrest much the quicker with Stone and Wong dominating the midfield area with their dribbling and trickery. And Mark Crossley would catch a corner easily and set up a an attack for Nottingham Forest on the break with Stone and Kevin Campbell involved. And excellent work from Ian Wong, who took two touches to set himself up to put the ball in the top corner of the net from 25 yards. This was not the first or last cracker that Ian Wong would score for Nottingham Forest. Spurs refused to give up and led by Sheringham, how could they? What a magnificent player he was. And he would set up a header for Chris Armstrong with 10 minutes to go and give Spurs some sort of hope. Jerry Francis would go gung-ho and turn into a 4-2-4 for the last five minutes. But it was too little too late. Even throwing Sol Campbell up front in stoppage time wasn't enough to get an equaliser. And the game finished 2-1. Three points thoroughly deserved for Nottingham Forest across the 90. And they go mid-table. Spurs still lagging behind, but not too far off. Both pushing for Europe. An entertaining game at the city ground. This game finished. Nottingham Forest 2, Tottenham Hotspurs 1. A tight battle here between two sides that were pushing to get into the top four, but just missing out in the end. What did you make of this Forest side? Obviously, they were a bit of a yo-yo team around this this period. Clough no longer there. Well, Stuart Pearce, he was a world-class left-back, obviously, uh, falling in at the National and had, had captained the Forest for many years. Um, on this day, and I was no surprise, I, I was a big fan of Ian Wong. And I thought he was, a, he was a brilliant midfielder, bullet of a left foot. And also Steve Stone, he had broken into Terry Venables' uh, England team at the time and he would go to Euro 96 as well. And, you know, he surprised a few. Forest had a, had a brilliant 94-95 they finished in the, in, in the top five in the Premier League. And they were just looking to push on again. 
They had a good run in Europe, getting to the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup. I think they missed a striker. I know they brought in Kevin Campbell. Did they sell Stan Collymore to Liverpool that summer? Yeah, this was the summer where, where Stan the man would go to Liverpool. So they didn't really replace Collymore as of yet, but they were still good enough to be a sustainable Premier League side this season, although they missed Collymore's goals, so they did drop a few places. Overall, a decent, decent Nottingham Forest side. Mark Crossley was a Welsh international. You know, Colin Cooper was a good defender. And uh, no, they did they did very well and they were entertaining and they gave all the big teams a run for their money. Really traditional club now in Forest. Um would love to see the likes of, of a forest back in the Premier League again soon. They've been trying for so long, haven't they? They've been getting into that top six and getting into the playoffs and all, but they just somehow just can't make that last push. Mm-hmm. Mush, um Dan mentioned Teddy up front for oh Teddy, Teddy up front. For Tottenham, um, and he was joined by Chris Armstrong. I think going back at the nineties, there was a lot of good English strikers, you know, that could score goals. Armstrong, Armstrong was quite good. Teddy was probably lacking a wee bit of creativity in behind him. Spurs had sold Klinsman and uh, Popescu and Barnby that summer. It was a lot for t- uh, Teddy to carry the team, but Armstrong was there to put the ball in the back of the net. Absolutely. Dan, do you think Tottenham got what they deserved after selling the likes of Klinsman and ending up finishing ninth? They, they got a shock when Klinsman wanted to leave after a year, you know, and there was other deals already done. I think they were probably lucky to get Klinsman in the first place, but in saying that, they certainly wouldn't have thought he was going to want to go back to Germany after a year. And They went for Chris Armstrong. Fans were critical of the sign at the time because they probably expected to sign a, a big-name striker again after losing Klinsman, but he was good, and he was a good. Uh, he was complimentary in terms of the partnership with Sheridan. Sheridan was always better with a, a target man and a runner beside him to give him space. They also lost Nick Barnby that summer. He moved to Middlesbrough, um, which they didn't see coming. Darren Anderton missed a lot of the season through injury. They somehow managed to keep him. He was he was heavily linked with Manchester United and, and even met with Sir Alex Ferguson. But I think overall, you look at the Tottenham team there. Ninth is probably where they deserve to be. There's a lot of holes in that side. And you can see, even in this game, pretty poor at the back. My Madman of the Week is Bruce Grobelor. Finally, I've been able to induct a goalkeeper. And no better than Big Bad Bruce. I've always said goalkeepers are a bit mad and Grobbler certainly fits that bill. War, jelly legs, big tash, safari adventure and match fixing. No, this is not the plot for Steven Seagal in Under Siege 12. This is what Bruce has encountered in his fascinating life. Before Bruce put on his first pair of goalkeeping gloves when he was a young lad, he spent some time away in the army fighting for Zimbabwe independence. Bruce openly admitted that he has killed men and has lost count of the many he killed. And one of his fellow soldiers, we will refer to him as Robson and Jerome, would cut an ear off of every man he killed and he kept the ears in a jar. He had quite a few jars. Bruce said that physiological trauma was acute and that football saved him. It kept him away from the dark thoughts of war. His gymnastic-like athletic ability, unflappable confidence, all qualities you look for in a number one. After spells at the Highlanders and the Whitecaps, these are genuine names of football clubs listeners, he was visiting family in England when he got a phone call out of the blue from none other than Big Ron Atkinson, who offered a Bruce a trial at West Brom, where he impressed, but no deal was finalised 
because the zesty Zimbabwe couldn't get a work permit. Word has it, he hit Rome with a swift glove slap for giving him a false hope. Porno Tash did get a transfer to Crew Alexander in Division 4, where they used to call him Bill Grobbler. Doesn't have the same ring, does it? Word had got about about Brucey's performances, and Liverpool were poking through the bushes scouting him, and the great Bob Paisley came to watch him. Grobbler did not temper his warm-up routine, which was a recipe of him walking on his hands and jumping on the crossbar. Paisley left the ground in disbelief before the game even started. Liverpool scouts badgered Paisley into buying the madcap keeper, and it worked. Liverpool Scottish Mafia, Kenny Dalglish, Graham Souness and Alan Hansen were not so forgiving if Grobbler ever made a mistake. Hansen would not talk to Grobbler for weeks after he met an era. Businessman Chris Vincent had plenty in common with Grobbler. The pair became good friends, thanks to their shared love of going out on the town and trying to pull women. They later became business partners as Vincent convinced his new buddy to invest in a safari park in his native Zimbabwe. It tanked and Grobbler was left seriously out of pocket. This left Vincent bankrupt, so in a desperate search for coin, he went to the Sun newspaper, offering his services in a sting operation to catch Grobbler to admitting to match fixing. What a screw job! November 1994, Grobbler was accused by the son of match-fixing to benefit a batting syndicate after being caught on videotape discussing match-fixing. He was charged with conspiracy to corrupt, along with fellow goalkeeper Hans Sagers, not Sager, crazy gangmanger, big John Fashionu, and businessman Mr. Lim. Grobbler pleaded not guilty, claiming he was only gathering evidence with the intent of taking it to the police. After two successful trials, in both which the jury could not agree on a verdict, he and his co-defendants were cleared in November of 1997. Grobbler later sued the son for liable and was awarded £85,000. The son appealed and the case was eventually taken to the House of Lords, where it was found that though the specific allegations had not been proved, there was evidence of dishonesty. The Lord slashed his awards to one pound, the lowest liable damages possible under English law, and ordered Bruce to pay the son's legal costs half a million pound. Grobler could not pay this and declared himself bankrupt. During his playing days, he made 775 appearances, of which 627 of them were first-team appearances for Liverpool, where he had an amazing record of starting 310 games on the bounce. He played under Paisley, Fagan and Adleish. He was mad and at times suspect, but he still won six Football League titles, three FA Cups, three League Cups, five Charity Shields, at a European Cup, and the African jungle man celebrated by walking the lap of honour on his hands. Grobbler enjoys appearing on TV and made a guest appearance as himself in an episode of one of Dano's favourite soaps, Brookside, in 1994. He also appeared on Hell's Kitchen and had a run-in with Gordon Ramsay, and despite everything that went on, Grobbler seemingly has no major regrets from his remarkable life and the match-fixing scandal which cost him everything. As he told 442 Magazine, they were fantastic days at Liverpool, but whatever happens now in my life, I can't complain too much. I came to this country with £10 in my pocket, and the law lords had finished me. I had £1, and that's quite some life I've had on £9. Grobler has had an incredible life. He's killed men. He's played for us. Highly successful Liverpool in the 80s. He lives to tell the tale in his autobiography, Life in the Jungle. My Mad Man of the Week is Bruce Grobelauer.
Camionato De Calcio Italiano Stephen, is that a giant pink newspaper you have on that tiny little coffee table? It is, and I've got a wee double espresso right beside me as well, Dan. I'm ready to get lit. It also looks like a mighty dessert you're getting stuck into. What are you nibbling on before this Titanic Milan v Fiorentina classic? Well, I'm going to I'm gonna let you into a little secret, Dan. On Saturday mornings, I like to have a banana split. Very nice. Yes, and it's just the perfect dessert for this wonderful game between Milan and Fiorentina. The San Siro was ready for a party on the afternoon of the 28th of April 1996. Fabio Capello's Milan had one hand on their 15th Scudetto. Victory over the tinkerman Claudio Ranieri's visiting Fiorentina, coupled with Juventus feeling to beat Roma in Rome, would ensure the title went to Milan once again. Capello's star-studded side were strong favourites going into this Week 32 clash. Sitting pretty at the top of the table, the Rossignere had only tasted defeat twice during the 95-96 campaign. Fiorentina were having a decent season of their own as they chased Lazio down for third spot, despite having already secured qualification for the 96-97 UEFA Cup. Postman Pat lookalike Capello started with ever-present Rossi in goal, a solid back four of Panucci, Costa Curta, Baresi, who was playing his 19th campaign for Milan, and Maldini at left-back, a midfield four of Savicevic, Uncle Albertini, Desai, and Donadoni, who was preferred to Oranio. And what about this for a front two, lads? Both signed in the summer of 95, Roberto Baggio and George Weah. My God. The Tinkerman was at the Tinkerin even in 1996. No Batistuta in the squad. He was being rested for the Coppa Italia final. Francesco Toldo was in the bags. A back four of Carnaschiali, Lorenzo Amoruso, Padalino and Sotil. The midfield four was Piacentini. I can't believe it, but he's popped up again. It's the extraterrestrial Stefan Schwartz, Portuguese Prince Rui Costa and Sandro Coy. Pancelli and Robbiati led the line. The expectant San Siro crowd was very quickly silenced, however. La Viola's Portuguese maestro Rui Costa danced his way through the Milan defence to find himself staring Sebastiano Rossi in the eyes and passed the ball beyond the cap-wearing goalkeeper, putting the visitors in front. It was a white handicap type cap for any hat lovers out there. The lead would last a matter of seconds, though, as Ranieri's side were still celebrating. Dejan Savicevic equalised from the kickoff. After a neat move down the right that left him one-on-one with Taldo, he tucked the ball under the onrushing shot stopper to square the game at one-all. With the first half drawing to a close, Roma were leading Juventus thanks to an early Marco Del Vecchio strike. As it stood, Milan would be crowned champions. The home crowd were off their seats once more as the game went into stoppage time at the end of the first half with referee Walter Sincerapini pointing to the spot to give Roberto Baggio the chance to hand Milan the lead. Baggio, calm as you like, placed the ball to Taldo's left. Then Baggio and his wee ponytail ran off into the corner. He ripped off his jersey, stuck it on the corner flag and held it up to the delight of the Milan crowd. The ref would once again point to the spot early on in the second half, but this time he awarded a penalty to Fiorentina. 
Sebastiano Rossi sent the San Siro wild by throwing himself to his right to push away the Portuguese prince, Rui Costa's effort, and keep the score at 2-1. Meanwhile, in Rome, it was 2-0 to Roma. Francesco Moriero had doubled the lead. Milan were nearly there. Milan could have had it wrapped up shortly after when a lovely flowing move led them into the area and Donadoni led the ball out to the edge of the box. In came Uncle Albertini. He connected with it lovely. It was sailing straight in, but then it somehow hit the post and bounced straight back out and away to safety. With just under 15 minutes to play, Marco Simeone wrapped up Milan's 15th title and sent the packed San Siro into party mode. The decisive move started with some trickery down the left. Simeone was alert in the box, getting on the end of Donadoni's cross, and despite the best efforts of Taldo, the ball trickled over the line, putting Milan out of sight. After this, there was action down on the bench, and in the 80th minute, the president of Liberia, George Weah, made way for the SC Milan number seven. And the number seven is only Sheffield Wednesday and West Ham hero and surely future madman of the week, Paolo Di Canio. He looked unbelievable in that famous Milan lotto jersey with Opel across the front. And he almost scored two, picking up the ball on the left-hand flank and sprinting to the edge of the D before unleashing a shot narrowly wide of Taldo's right post. It was difficult to see the last few minutes of this game as there was that many flares let off in the San Siro. It was like little smoke bombs had gone off everywhere. Juventus fought back in the capital to draw 2-2 against Roma, but it didn't matter as Milan cruised the victory and the title was theirs. Their 15th Scudetto and their fourth in five years. It would also be Fabio Capello's last game as manager of this Milan side during this spell in charge. He would take his post van, his post bag, and his little black and white cat called Mucci Panucci off the Real Madrid. This game was a joy to watch, 80,000 inside the San Siro, and the last glimpse of this great Milan side of the mid-90s before they went downhill, until the end of the decade when they rose again. Desai showed why he is the complete box-to-box midfielder, and the pace and power of George Weah was frightening. I couldn't think of a number nine in today's game with Weah's qualities. It wasn't a bad season for the Tinkerman and Batty goal leader. They ended up winning the Coppa Italia with Batty goal getting the winner against Atalanta. This one finished SC Milan 3, Fiorentina 1. Dan, I'm sure you were as excited as I was when I uh, seen Baju and Way up front on the team sheet here. Two absolute colossals of mid-90s football. Oh, the, the very best in the world. Um, where obviously, he, he had won the World Player of the Year award. Baggio was the king of Italy still. And uh, he had a few clubs in his career, but uh, AC Milan getting them was a very shrewd move from Fabio Capello. Brilliant partnership. And really, when you see the back four, you have Desai in the engine room and those two up front, it's no wonder that they won the title. You mentioned Marcel Desi being a box-to-box midfielder, which was kind of a surprise to me because I can remember him playing for France at centre-half and him being such a composed centre-half and the same for um, for Chelsea. My God, this boy had some engine. Unbelievable engine. A terrific athlete. World-class footballer. He would pop up and score goals from Milan as well. And it's like, you've got this unbelievable back five, including Rossi. And it's... Like, how can we protect this even further? Oh, we'll throw Desai in front of them. You know what I mean? It's unbeatable. You, you look back at the record that 
Costa Curta, Brazy, Maldini that they had, and then you throw Desai on top of it. They did not concede many goals. It's quite sad to see now. You know, Milan obviously had that decent side as well with Kaka in the sort of mid two thousands, but. They've been off the ball for at least a decade now. And uh, was it nice to go back and, and watch this Milan side of the, the mid-90s? It was. They were they were the powerhouse of Italian football in the 90s. A player doesn't look bad in a, a Milan kit, that very iconic black and red strip. The players there, like, look at the defenders. You said it was at Brazi's 19th season for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't get past that back four. And then also the Rossi and goals. Uh, great team and... Nice to look back on Milan in the 90s rather than Milan over the last 10 years where they haven't been successful due to ownership and some bad investment. Fiorentina keep popping up in the pod. How good was Rui Costa? He was as good as a, a playmaker in world football, as you would find. Get him to Fiorentina, to have him there for so long. The likes of him and Batistuta clearly thought that the team was capable of great things, you know? And he later moves on to Milan, obviously, and, and gets what he deserves in, in terms of titles and, and Champions Leagues. He's the type of player you'd build a team around. You know, you just say, right, I've got Rui Costa. He's in the free roll. What does he need? He needs two strikers. He needs three men behind him working their socks off. And he just needs freedom. A brilliant, brilliant player. And he, at Fiorentina, he complimented Balestuda superbly. Listeners, I know we've said it before, but I watched this entire game in full on YouTube with Peter Brackley, James Richardson, Channel 4 coverage. The only bad thing about it was George Graham was the pundit, but just skip past him. Get on and watch some Syria in the 90s just to see a full San Siro with the flares going off, the baggy tracksuits on the sideline. It's glorious. Those against the Zoyles. This week's Balls Against the Wall quiz is sponsored by the ball Faustino Espria, smuggled from Colombia to Newcastle in 1995-96. This ball may or may not be the reason for Newcastle's title collapse. Either way, it is now safe and sound in Peter Beersley's attic. Oh, what a ball. Yes, welcome to the Balls Against the Wall quiz, the quiz where I pit Dan against Mosh to see who has the best football knowledge it's 5-3 in the series to Dan. So, Mush, if he can pull it back this week, it's going to be real tight going into the end of the season. Lads, as ever, we are joined by our good friend, Ua Cantona, to keep the scores. Hello, Eric. Eric, what did you think about 1995-1996? I am Cantona. Spot on. Great stuff, Eric. Before we get into anything, we need your player buzzers. And this week, the player buzzers are Premier League stadiums. Dan, what is your player buzzer? Riverside! Matchman, what is your player buzzer? Highfield Road. Highfield Road versus Riverside. Love it. Lads, this week you're playing for the number two single from that week in the charts. It's Ua, just a little bit, by Gina G. Oh, Foxy. Tune. You will know when the quiz is over when you hear this noise. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Question one. Which sports brand made Blackburn Rovers kits? Riverside. Yes, Dan. Essex. Correct. Who captained Manchester City? Riverside. Yes, Dan. Keith Curl. He did. Who sponsored Chelsea's kits? Riverside. That's Dan. Curzlade. Correct. Where did Nottingham Forest play their home games? I feel road. Oh. Yes, Mush. 
City Grove. <laughs> yes. Manchester United won the league, but only had one player in the PFA team of the year. Who was that player? Riverside. Yes, Dan. Eric Cantona. Incorrect. What? Mush. Gary Neville. It is Gary Neville. <laughs> Are you joking me? I know, I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> who finished top goal scorer in the league? Riverside. Yes, Dan. Alan Shearer. He did, with 31. Andre Kinchelskis bagged 15 goals for which club? Riverside. That's Dan again. Oh, yeah, Everton. Which Liverpool player recorded the most assists of the season with 15? Road. Oh, yes, Mosh. Stevie McManaman. He did. Oh, good shout. Man City, QPR. And which other team were relegated from the Premier League? I feel road. Oh. Yes, Mosh. Bolton. Correct. Bolton. Forgot the brother. <laughs> Sports brand Pony. Made how many clubs kits during Never the season? Seen. Yes, Dan. Four. <laughs> Correct. Can you name yeah. them? Can you name them? West Ham, Southampton, Tottenham, and uh, I don't know. Coventry's the other one, but oh. well done. Who was the captain of Manchester United? Riverside. Yes, Dan. Dave Bruce. Correct. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Okay, let's go over to Ua with the scores. What are the scores, Eric? Conair, Catra, Daniel, Sit. Yes, Dan has won. It's 7-4 to Dan, which means he's 6-3 up in the series. And Ua, just a little bit by Gina G, is on its way to you. How do you feel, Dan? I'm delighted to get that tune because, believe it or not, man, I'm, I'm actually sick of Simply Red's greatest hits, so I need to get something fresh in the CD player. Maybe you could lend your greatest hits to Mush now that you're sick of it. I, I will if he wants them, 100%. He knows they're there. I'll take it off you, yeah. You, you want, want Yeah. You want a trip to the fairground tonight, Mush? I'll take a trip to the fairground with hawkers tonight. I'm glad we could make that happen. Match of the week! Bloody hell! Yes, welcome to Match of the Week. It's all over at Anfield, but don't worry, the matchman's standing by. If he's still alive, that is, after this one. Matchman, what's happening at Anfield? Yes, Dean! Stan, not Eureka's man, Collymore's 92nd minute winner has put a dent in Newcastle's title hopes as they've been beaten 4 3 by Liverpool at a roaring Anfield. My word, football is a beautiful game. Way overcomplicated. This is why it should be played. Bloody just go for it. The mentality was on show tonight in this seven-goal thriller, which has treated us to an attacking feast. Anfield has witnessed a Bobby Dazzler, and it may go down as the best game in Premier League history. Thanks to two teams who are up at the top of the table for a reason and let their fire guard down tonight, and the art of defending went out the windows. Similar to a brick going through a window in the toxic area in Liverpool. Kevin Keegan looks to have aged over this 90 minutes. Has he got the look of, oh, I was 12 points clear at January. Now I've gone and effed it up. This tie was meant to be played at the end of March, but had to be rescheduled due to Liverpool being involved in the Littlewoods FA Cup tie with Brian Little's Villa. Well, that suited me, as I was unavailable that weekend, as I was away at the live filming of an episode of Funhouse, 
watching Pat Sharp rock a mullet and two twins. Going into this game, Newcastle had two games in hand over Manchester United. Their advantage was slim shady in comparison to that at the end of January when they had a 12-point lead. Signs of a serious touch of the Jimmy Whites. King Kevin made one change to the team from their previous match, which they'd lost to Arsenal at a screaming Lady Highbury. Defender Warren Dodgy Barnett Horton with Steve Watson Watson coming in. They lined up with a 4-4-2 formation with Faustina, Jelly Legs, Asprea, and Big Les Ferdinand serving as the two men up top. And David is my hair worth at Genola and Peter Quasimodo Beardsley as the wide men providing width and service. Liverpool replace Michael I broke Liverpool hearts in 89. Thomas with Jamie Redknapp and Dominic Slaphead Matteo with Rob Mrs. Jones. Roy Evans deployed a 3-4-1-2 formation, fruity to say the least. Steve Spiceboy McManaman acting as the link between midfield and the final third. Newcastle could not have wished for a worse start than Robbie, not Mark Fowler, heading home unmarked from Stan the Man, Ulrika Collymore's cross to open the scoring inside the first two minutes. Wakey, wakey, magpies, hands off, snakey. But they soon made amends. A spray is tricky, strobe lighting effect. Feet took him inside. Neil Razor Ruddock with ease. And when Big Lace Ferdinand was found in the middle, he turned beautifully before beating traffic cone James with a powerful effort, which perhaps James should have kept out. Was my her worth it, Janola then? Stunned Anfield as he ran through off the left from Big Lace Ferdinand's quick thinking. His through ball and beat an on-rushing traffic cone, James, with a cool finish from 20 yards out to silence the cop as Newcastle, as it stood, moved level with United at the top of the table. Keegan's boxers still white at this stage. Liverpool low were now pinned and got up after a two-count. First, Mark Fruit and Veg Fowler, and then Steve Spiceboy McManaman went close, but no cigar. Newcastle winning at halftime, 2-1 up. The second period was just 10 minutes old when Fowler did find a breakthrough with his second of the evening from Spice Boy's smart setup. Another example of a combination which may provide hope for Terry Venables without his pet kangaroo Carlton Palmer's England side at Euro 96 this summer. It's coming home! Oh, wait. The relief around Anfield was unbelievable when it was swiftly burst. Reeve legs a spray of bait traffic on James, who was already out of his area on a sponsored walk from nearly 30 yards. Newcastle could have put the game to a bedtime story had Janola and his head and shoulders find Ferdinand. No, not Rio or Anton, but Big Uncle Les in a great position to score a fourth of the night. King Kev's face matched his cloud hair as his fears were met. His Newcastle side had a dose of the runs and Ulrika Collymore's first of the night followed as he turned in plastic Paddy McAteer's excellent D'Lo Brown delivery from deep on the right flank. Before Newcastle missed yet another chance as Calamity Chains finally denied Uncle Les Ferdinand on a one-on-one. What a clown of a keeper. Three all. Was that it for the drama? It appeared that way until deep into added time. Substitute Ian Big Tash Rush, a man who's played at Liverpool for 48 years, and RB star John Barnes played a number of one twos on the edge of the Newcastle box 
He struck the ball through to the Eureka. He rifled it past Cernicek to give the 40,000 fans and Keegan a weird sensation down below. This game, a goal rush 4-3 classic. And no doubt it will be a VHS bestseller. Some great matchups. Keegan versus Evans. Janola versus McManaman in the Battle of the Locks. Asprey's Legs versus John Scales. And Carlsberg versus Newcastle Brown Ale. Liverpool have claimed three points. They have a frightening front two of cauliflower and fruit and veg Fowler. Big question marks over traffic cone David James. But there are signs of hopes for Liverpool with their attacking options. And an FA Cup final in May to look forward to. I hear the players go for suit fittings next week with the colour cream being an option. As for Newcastle, well, manager Kevin Keegan slumped over the advertising hordens in front of his dugout with a face that has just either seen a ghost or he has just soiled himself. His magpies granted are exciting to watch, but nothing wrong with shutting up shop the odd time, Kevin. Keegan's side still trailing Manchester United by three points in the race for the 95-96 title. They do have a game in hand, but at least we forget his side were 12th clear in January. The title race is alive and well, but I can sense there is one of the biggest battle jobs in English football ever. It's finished here. Thank God, Liverpool 4, Newcastle 3. I am goosed and in need of Lucas aid and not the glass bottle type you would get if you were in hospital. Back to you in the studio, Steve. What a match, match, man. Up there with one of the best games ever in the Premier League. What did you make of it? Superb game of football. Uh, two teams who at the time were unable to shut up shop, so they just went at each other with uh, the great attacking players that they had. Any game that ends in 4-3 is a cracker. But when you have these type of players on show, it really adds to it because there was so many chances created as well. It could have been 8-7, 9-8. It was a... Brilliant, brilliant game. I think summed up both clubs at the time, you know, just very, very attacking. You know, looking back, it's probably quite easy to pinpoint this game as the point where it all went peak tong for, for Kevin Keegan. I was quite concerned by his, his gear that he was wearing at Anfield. He, he looked like a member of Spandu Ballet. He had sort of a red velvet blazer and a wee skinny tie. Yes. I thought, I thought he was sort of doomed from the off. Yes, he got all dressed up for his return to Anfield, you know, a Liverpool hero himself. And there was a lot of dodgy clubber floating about uh, Liverpool back then and Keegan had to do it on his return. A shocking blazer. Uh, I think he soon covered it up with a fine Nuki Brown Adidas jacket, thankfully. But he got all dressed up for Sky Sports Live and uh, managers should not do that. Definitely not, especially wearing the other team's colours. <laughs> um, do, you, do you do you think looking back that that was the final nail in the coffin in terms of them going for the league I think I would have knocked them for six most touches on it there shut up shop three all yeah take the point would have been a bad result um, but to lose it then and I think more than the players Kevin Keegan was a very passionate man and he's a passionate man and a very passionate manager hard on the sleeve type that iconic image of him sunk over the advertising board, you know, he's defeated more than the players where it's his job to lift the players and get them going again. Don't think he had it in him. I think that sunk him. 
Just looking at this Newcastle team, as you said, they were all gung-ho and they were delighted to watch at times. Who stood out for you in their in their forward line? He did a real job with his hands. Remember the, the fans went and protested when he sold Andy Cole and Keegan promised them. He said, and he was he always he always believed things that Keegan says. He's so passionate and honest. I promise you, I'm signing good players. And he signed Janola and Les Ferdinand. He then signed Christina Waspria. Keith Gillespie was brilliant for them in 1986. And that, I would look at the Espria signing because he dropped Gillespie and moved Beardley to the right. Beardley didn't have the legs to play on the wing anymore. I would have used Espria as an impact sub, basically, as backup for Les Ferdinand. And because Ferdinand loved crosses, he loves supply. He was the old fashioned English brilliant centre forward. Um, and the supply that Ginola and Gillespie had given him had worked all year. Yeah. If it's not broke, do not fix it. But. but all those attacking players were, were brilliant to watch. I have these memories of Espria being this unbelievable striker, but his record for, for Newcastle isn't great. You know, I think it was 9-45, and 45. we touched on it before. And Keith Gillespie has went on record afterwards saying that he was so good, his performances were so good at Newcastle that Alex Ferguson tried to sign him back. Uh, Kevin Keegan just wasn't having it. That's true. He, he was really just electric pace, you know. Very hard to defend against that type of pace. And then you have Ginola on the other side with so much skill. Good balance. Good balance. We obviously have, have made light of his I would love it rant, but how much would you love a manager right now in today's game to be as passionate, off the cuff, as heartfelt as Keegan and just say what he feels and really be honest on camera? It would seem any time a manager does that now that they get criticised by sections of, of the media and in some cases they end up losing their job, which is ridiculous really because all football fans want from their club in general is honesty, uh, success obviously as well, but honesty first. Um, you know, the likes of Keegan is missed, certainly. Uh, we could do it do it a lot more, but it is, he, he was refreshing and... So honest, maybe too honest, but you can't knock him for that. And this week's Maverick of the Week is the one and only David Junilo. His early career began with Toulon in 1985 before representing RC Paris and Brest in France. David had slowly progressed through the ranks of the French game and signed for PSG in January 1992 with the backing of Canal Plus, wanting to add some fleur to the PSG squad. David was a firm fan favourite at the Parc de France and despite having issues with international football, he never let it affect his club form by scoring 13 goals in the 1993-1994 season and helping PSG win the French title, also winning the French Player of the Year, and he was indeed PSG's top scorer and assist maker. In the summer of 1995, David was heavily linked with a move to Barcelona. However, Kevin Keegan somehow convinced him to join Newcastle. Regrets, I've had a few. David was a huge hit on Tyneside, and along with Peter Beardsley, Sir Les Ferdinand, Keith Gillespie, Festino Espria and Philip Albert, Newcastle almost won the title in 1995-96, but unbelievably collapsed and lost a 12-point lead. In the summer of 1996, again Barcelona would come knocking. Newcastle refused to sell David and he respectfully didn't force a move. Regrets, I've had a few. 
part two. On to the summer of 1987, and David moved to Tottenham Hotspur after a falling out with new Newcastle manager, Kenny Dalglish, who didn't rate the Frenchman. He was the catalyst during the 1998-99 season when he helped them win their first trophy in seven years in the form of the Worthington Cup. And he was also awarded the PFA Player of the Year Award from his peers, which is the ultimate honour for any professional footballer. And is even more of a surprise considering the strength and players that the likes of Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea and Leeds United had. David was surprisingly sold to Aston Villa in the summer of 2000, a move that shocked David to his core as he fully expected to be offered a new deal for Tottenham Hotspur after all he had done for the club. And he could not get to grips with John Gregory, the Aston Villa manager, at all, who constantly criticised David's physique. This move was doomed, and David would later move to Everton, where he would retire from professional football under David Moyes in the summer of 2002. And while David was not in Moyes' plans, he was rewarded with playing the final game of that season. As David Moyes had told him that week during training, it's the least that your career deserves. With his international career, David surprisingly was only capped 17 times by France. Now, while getting 17 caps for your country would be unbelievable for the majority of players, I can't help but wonder how a player of David's talent didn't get more caps to his name. He seemed to be another victim of French media who have ended many a career, and David, along with Eric Cantona, was cast aside in the mid-90s after failing to qualify for USA in 1994. Absolutely Ridiculous when you consider the talent of both men. And David played his last game for France in 1995. Gerard Houllier has a lot to answer for regarding both these French legends. And David took it one step further by taking Houllier to court for defamation of character. A case that was later thrown out. But David, I say fair play to him for standing up for himself and his morals and his own personality. I feel Houllier hung him out to dry. His career and honours read as follows. His club appearances, 503, with 81 goals. And for his country, 17 caps and three goals. In terms of trophies, one French title, two French cups, one French League Cup, one English League Cup, one Intertoto Cup with Aston Villa in 2001. He won the Under-21 Toulon Tournament in 1987 with an excellent Under-21 French side. He was the French Player of the Year in 1993. He was the PFA Player of the Year in 1999. He has won numerous Player of the Months, Man of the Matches, and has been in a number of Team of the Seasons. He was also named in the FIFA World Eleven in 1996. In conclusion, David is a magical and powerful winger with great vision and skill and tremendous world-class ability. An entertaining player who played the way he and fans wanted. A scorer and creator of wonderful goals, and a fine-looking man also. This week's Maverick of the Week is the one and only David Ginola. I, li I like the fact that football is made for entertainment. I like that. But in a certain way, I don't see football entertaining as much as it did in the past. I can see that football is I'm very concerned about the fact that tactically we are more concerned about being close in very tactical battles rather than giving the opportunity and the freedom for creative players to exprime themselves to the best. And that's my concern. I will not mind to pay people a lot of money if, can, if I, every weekend I jump from my seat and I say, because I, I, I can't do that. And this is why people on, who play football on a Sunday afternoon 
they don't mind to see people earning money because they say, well, I can play any Sunday afternoon. I will never be able to do that because it's a proper job. This is proper talent. This is a gift. You've been under something and you have a gift. You ask me a question, how do you do that? Sometimes when you receive the ball and you go this way and you pass, I, I can't. I didn't work that because it's about instinct and football should be that. Creativity, instinct, you don't dictate things in football. This is a gift, this is something. When you receive the ball, the ball is your friend. Any position in the space is about how you're going to move around, how you're going to play, knowing where are your teammates, your opponents. It's about that, it's about... I love this game. <laughs> we nearly got the tears, David, as well. We think you're priceless. We have loved listening to your stories tonight. Merci beaucoup. It was a pleasure. Hey, hey, Brucey's bedtime bath. Nice and warm, full of suds. A scented candle, a rubber duck. In the bath, Brucey don't give a dreams of passes to be. Okay, Dan, I've got the story ready. Can you just check if Brucey's uh, all right in the bath? Okay, Brucey. Only time for a quick wash and go tonight. Ideally, I would prefer you to get a shower, but I know how much you do love a little bath. You have a flight to Paris at midnight tonight as you're off on a wine-tasting weekend with David May, Paul Parker and French Onion, William Prunier. Okay, Brucey. This week's story is by fellow Geordie, Peter Beardsley. The beginning of the 95-96 season, things could not have started better for Newcastle. Even before a ball was kicked, there was a tidal wave of optimism sweeping Tyneside after the summer arrivals of Les Ferdinand from QPR, David Ginola from Paris Saint-Germain, Warren Barton from Wimbledon, and Shaka Hislop from First Division Reading. The players were just as excited as the supporters. When I looked around the dressing room and saw just how many top-class players we had at the club now and compared it to the situation during my first spell at Newcastle, I could only marvel at the giant strides the club had made in the past three years. The gaffer, Kevin Keegan, had certainly pushed the boat out in a big way. I did have an inkling about Warren signing because the business was being conducted while we had been with England for the Umbro Cup. Being a Londoner, he was more than a little inquisitive of what life would be like for him in the northeast. Two days later, the boss got out the checkbook again and Les Ferdinand arrived. Oh, I was delighted when the club signed Big Les. It showed the ambition by attracting one of the most sought-after players in the country. Les could have gone anywhere, but the package that was offered with the prospect of success as well as financial security persuaded him to join Warren in the great Newcastle adventure. I had no doubts that Les would join a long line of successful strikers at Newcastle. The supporters had been looking for someone to fill the void left when Andy Cole went to Manchester United, and Les was the perfect solution. One person who I know was extra happy about him coming was our defender, Steve Howey, who now had his most feared opponent as a teammate. David Ginola was another who was an instant hit with the Geordie crowd. I remember him playing for Paris Saint-Germain in the European Champions Cup. He looked an outstanding player. 
but I don't think even I was prepared for the kind of individual flair I witnessed from David in a pre-season friendly against non-league outfit, Rushton and Diamonds. David was to face much bigger examinations of his skill, but this was the perfect game for him to come in and demonstrate to the few hundred Newcastle supporters who made the trip what he was capable of. David is a likeable character with a great sense of humour. He could not speak a lot of English when he first came, but now he can exchange Geordie expressions with the best of us. When we reflect on the nuts and bolts of that season, it must be said that we let ourselves down badly away from home. We took only one point from a possible 15 between February and March. Being beaten at home for the first and only time in the season by the eventual champions only made things worse. The old saying goes, goals win matches. And that couldn't have been more true in that match against Manchester United. We felt it was only a matter of time before we would score because for the first 45 minutes, we murdered them in every other facet of the game. But we didn't keep it going. Eric Cantona ghosted in at the far post to score the only goal of the match in the second half. You have to wonder where United would have been without the Frenchman. He was absolutely magnificent especially in the second half of the season when he scored some crucial goals and he certainly deserved his award as Footballer of the Year. I still love Newcastle though, even after that season and I wanted to stay there for as long as possible. Good night, Brucey. Sleep tight and don't let Gary Pallister bite. So now it's the part of the pod where we pick another player in our Simpsons lookalike 11. There's only a couple of places left, but Dan has got this week's pick. Dan, who have you went for? Yes, Stephen, this week I've went for a third striker. He's going to go into the firepower with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Giroud. And it's a man and his lookalike, two family men, two men who are kings of their trade, two men not afraid to get physical or violent when they need to be. And it's Cletus, a.k.a. Luis Suarez. And he goes straight in to our 3-4-3 or 4-3-3, whatever way it's going to end up being. I love it. And I think it's going to work. Cletus is slack-jawed, Yokel. What do you make of that match, man? I did not see that coming. And I hope he does not bite Wendell and Quimby's uh, nephew up top. I suppose every team needs an animal. And we have one now in Cletus. <laughs> And there's that famous song in The Simpsons which goes, uh, some folks will never clean their toes, but then again, some folk will, like Suarez, the slack-jawed yokel. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to have to be a 3-4-3. What do we reckon? I think so. Uh, right? The way it's shaping up, it's going to be an attacking team. Brilliant stuff. Uh, it's my pick next week, and I've got a defender for you. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you because I'm not sure you would have heard of the player. Mm. There we go. So, Cletus the Suarez, slack-jawed yokel, going straight in to the Simpsons lookalike 11. Great pick. Okay, unfortunately, that is it for this week's pod, but we will be back next week, and we're going to take a look at some cup classics from the 2007-2008 season, particularly some of the big upsets in the FA Cup. Dan, are you looking forward to this one? Oh, looking forward to delving into some giant killings. Um, always refreshing to see some smaller clubs topple the big boys. 
Absolutely. Matchman, you love a good cup run. What are you looking forward to about next week? Yes, I, lo- I love a good cup run. I love the old traditional cup. So I'm looking forward to a couple of juicy upsets and some of the players on show that we forgot have played for certain clubs. Remember, folks, you can get in touch with us with your football stories and also the games that you might like covered. We're on Facebook at, at Jumpers Podcast. Our Twitter handle is at Jumpers for Goal, followed by the number four or send us an email at jumperspodcast at gmail.com. So it's good night from me and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush the Matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Mush. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 